0: Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it
1: actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Dan. We're back. Here we are. It's, it's the, we're taping this on the Monday after the Friday where President Trump issued the executive order on immigration and it's been you know uh, obviously well uh, I got to stop you there yeah, because
0: we are not a show about politics or personalities I know we're, I know. we're a show about process we're a show about systems we're a, we're a show about the way gov actually works
1: right I know you're jumping you're jumping on my lines here no I just want to make sure that, yeah. that
0: people begin to they don't like you know, if if they have a particular political view that they don't turn up the volume or turn it off entirely. That, and we're trying, to, we're trying to work with the people who actually do this stuff.
1: Completely agree. A lot of people reached out to me over the weekend and asked, you know, are you guys going to talk about this on, on on the podcast? And, you know, I thought about it and, and I come back to, to our True North for this podcast, which is a place where we want – all people of all political stripes to come and listen and have it resonate so whether you are a huge supporter of, of of a particular action the president takes or you're on the other end of the spectrum and outraged, we're not gonna comment or or speak at those end edges of the spectrum instead we're going to try to do what we think civil servants have to do right. which is think through like how to carry out these um, various activities, um, as stewards of the government and as serving their institutions and what kind of goes through their heads as they have to deal with some of this stuff.
0: Well, and I was thinking, there, there were a couple of things I was thinking about over this the weekend. There was the story of the fact that the head of the National Park Service got a call from the president. Right? Yeah, so which
1: goes against a point you made
0: earlier in one of our podcasts. But, yes, yeah, so it was a fascinating kind of you know point of issue of what happens when you get a call from – Not just the boss, but like the bosses, 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 or the supreme boss, right? Um, And then you have this instance where um, that person signs an order that has direct impact on the operations of the agency, and people have to execute it. And um, I think it's a really fascinating set of lessons about why there are things like the NSC process, why there are things like a traditional... Um, uh, media rollout process and and we have a great guest today who can talk a little bit about that too
1: yeah, Eric Schultz is joining us. Eric was um, a major player in the communications office for uh, for the Obama administration and dealt a lot with crisis communications, and therefore we both worked closely with him because he was the guy on the spot in the White House for communications when the Las Vegas scandal broke and led you to the GSA, and when the um, IG report for the IRS came out and led me to the IRS. So. So we were planning to talk to him about just like what the world looks like on the other side, and we can still do some of that. But given that our emphasis today will be on government communications and given the events of this weekend, I thought maybe we should talk about some questions um, since in the last podcast you asked me a bunch of questions, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question to get to get us started about how this okay. played out. So my my experience in government when you announced things big and small was that there was a particular um, set of standard activities that you would undertake in advance of rolling something out there would be, for an exa- as an example, a combination of a press release and frequently asked questions. You would um, send uh, these materials embargoed to the press or to a couple of members of the press. Before the embargo was lifted, I remember participating in conference calls with various members of the press where they have fact sheets and they can ask questions. And we gathered, if the issue was my issue or somebody else's, we gathered the right government experts to answer those questions before it went fully live. And that also included um, meetings with the Hill. I I was going to say Hill outreach is another big issue. You know, we'd go to the four corners, the appropriators and the authorizers of a particular issue. Because
0: the thing that that politicians hate the most is looking like they don't know what's going on. Because they're going to get the question. You know, the first person a reporter is going to call is a politician for a reaction. Yeah. And if they don't know... Then their reaction is going to
1: sound like they're uninformed, they're disconnected, they're not part of the team. They... Fair enough, and and I guess the question from a communication standpoint is, what I just outlined seems, as I'm describing it, robust, but it also seems somewhat stodgy and 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 old school, right? You get mm-hmm. your FAQs, you get your fact sheets, you you have conference calls with reporters on an embargoed basis, and in today's world with with Twitter and social media and and the lightning. Uh, quickness with which information travels—does um, that old process still work? And and are the events of this week something that teaches us that that old process still needs to to be in play?
0: Well, so it's very interesting. The um, I, I had a I had a, a different set of rules we kind of operated under when I was working uh, for the former mayor of Washington D.C., Adrian Fenty, where we had a. Uh, a very kind of competitive city council we were working with. And there were people on the city council who were, you know, kind of, as later demonstrated by one one of them running against him for mayor, really committed to um, being an alternative, you know. And so we we actually would really back end that process of informing folks because we knew the minute we told them they were going to tell other people, right, so that there was no such thing as a real embargo. And what I saw a little bit in the motion around this executive order was a some sense of distrust about the ability of the normal people within the normal process to play the normal role and wait for the the that, White House to make the statement.
1: That's really interesting because some of the explanations um, that have been reported in the media over the past twenty four hours regarding the rollout was the sensitivity of the information, the national security impacts of it, and again, not commenting on the, you know, on on that as a basis. Um, but it's interesting to connect it to your point, which is, if you are yet, not yet comfortable with understanding what the leak potential is of these various um, uh, information streams. Um, and you add to that the fact that it's a, it's, it's a national security-sensitive topic, potentially. Combining that would lead you maybe to the, the, the place that they, they landed. But in the place that they landed, there's, there was uh, confusion um, as this thing was being rolled out. So there's, there's, there's definitely a tension there. And
0: I, I can't remember which um, senator or congressman said it. They said that they found it ironic that a, an executive order on extreme vetting— wasn't extremely valid,
1: Senator Portman. I think, I think it was Senator yeah. Portman, right? Yeah, exactly. former director of OMB. Exactly <laughs> right,
0: and and therefore someone who deeply appreciates the understanding, uh, or the necessity, or the role, or the value of interagency um, uh, coordination.
1: Yeah, because that there's two issues I think that are interesting through the through the gov actually lens here. Um, one is the my question, I think, of communication approach and best practices and how does that evolve and, and what can we learn from this weekend as there's different things that are converging here. The second is is what you talked about is kind of more of the substantive interagency review. And I, I was involved um, for in many, many different executive orders um, over the course of my career. And there is this... This process where the executive order goes out in eighteen months. Eighteen
0: months is what. It, well, it uh, shouldn't. You know.
1: It shouldn't take eighteen months. But I can remember sitting on an executive order that I might have had responsibility for, like something on, you know, improper payments. It's obviously something much less uh, on the national consciousness than the issue we saw this weekend. But but still, I remember sitting with lawyers from the Justice Department, um, painstakingly going over various edits. Um, and I think the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an import, another important lesson learned. Like, I don't know um, how much internal uh, uh, vetting and, and sharing was done of this executive order. There's kind of mixed reports out there. I think the larger question is how does the government early in a transition make sure that there's good communication channels between all the various stakeholders that can help make sure that these executive orders are carried out you know, smartly and cleanly. Um, how are they getting into the mix? And, here? and I
0: think the problem is that they weren't listening to some of the earlier Gov Actually podcasts. Well, that because, could be part of the Because problem. if they had, they would have realized that the that the smart, talented, professional staff who exist within these agencies are actually capable of providing them useful, important, and valuable advice about what the knock-on effects might be of a policy of the sort. That they issued on Friday. So I think part of the reason why there was no interagency vetting was because they've only been four confirmed, uh, uh, you know, people within, you know, out in the agencies. Uh, and so there's a sense that, well, those agencies aren't yet our agencies. So we're going to do the vetting within the White House within the team that is our team. And, uh, and you know, we know the policy direction we want to take. We, we had, you know, in our view, their view, a strong a uh, position taken by the electorate, and that they were there to lead. So I think what you have, though, is this disconnect, and it's a problematic one between the White House and the agencies, and it's one that we've talked about a lot. Yeah, so so
1: just, just kind of clarifying an earlier point you made, I, I don't know that we can know we no what idea. level of internal no idea. coordination. I think my prediction is that when we look back on this with some distance, We'll reach the conclusion once more people speak out about about what occurred mm-hmm. as a lesson learned is um, is that it probably wasn't optimized. And, you know, it wasn't optimal. You know, there, there probably could have been more and different people at the table. And I think part of it may be the, the newness of the administration and kind of getting comfortable in, in these processes. And they're not yet there. Um, and I think another potential piece of it is something we talked about earlier, which is when you layer into the fact that some of the things that the that the president is is proposing are extremely different. Directions than the previous administration went, and so there's kind of this inherent, I think, question that that the the Trump administration people might have in terms of if we go in and we change course by 180 degrees right. versus what these uh, individuals have been working on, how how are they going to tolerate that? And so there could be somewhat of a reluctance to bring more people into the sure. fold, given the major shift in approach that we're seeing. But I
0: think it comes down to the categories of fear of leaking, so it's a lot, it's trust, and then I think it's uh, this sense that we don't have our people in place yet in those, in those places, so that's kind of um, reach. And then it's uh, need for speed. They wanna make a clear statement. You know, it's this whole pressure of the first 100 days I'm very skeptical of the hundred days thing. I think you can make some really big, fast mistakes in your first hundred days. Yeah,
1: I think the proof point wasn't there potentially for them that, look, we can go through this more traditional process, and at the mm-hmm. end of it it can a it can happen relatively rapidly, and b, we can end up with a product. That's still aligned and consistent with the uh, with the White House's vision of of where we want to go. I think often what happens in these processes for a variety of different executive orders is that the process ends up. It, it, it can slow things down a bit, but sometimes it actually ends up improving the substance, not just. Hey, you can't write the provision this way because it's violative of some regulation or law or something like that, and so you want to shift the language around a bit and have it fit better. But I've I've witnessed in my in my time input that w- that we would look at and we'd say this is a better idea for actually how to attack the problem. Um, now, this executive order in particular is you know obviously controversial um, and um, and may not fit into. The the, the the normal distribution curve of other executive orders. And so that's something to just throw out there. So I'm not suggesting that this is a normal EO. What I'm suggesting is what are the lessons learned or the question I'm raising as as this administration f- moves forward in terms of its interaction with these institutions, with these people, and this process of issuing these executive well, and, declarations. And, and, I,
0: and I think another big takeaway was that this was an order that needed to be implemented in, in dozens – hundreds maybe even a thousand different places and with really very little kind of um, internal preparation those talking points those FAQs those consideration of what the implications would be what you had then was this disparate level of implementation and 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 operate operate operating of it you know operationalizing it and that caused all kinds of confusion and, and concern so I think that that's yeah. also part of the problem and recognize this is a this is a big ship you got to turn even if you decide you want to put in 180 degree input into the steering wheel it, it takes a while to turn it and you want to make sure that everyone knows which way you're going
1: yeah and again I, I think what we'll probably learn this is a prediction is again that the uh, internal coordination, uh, could be better. And, um, and I had those experiences. Look, I swung and missed on various occasions when I was in government in terms of, you know, some type of edict uh, uh, coming down from, from the White House or from OMB that impacted federal agencies And and it landed without me and the team that I was working with doing sufficient uh, number of phone calls and interactions to kind of answer questions and understand exactly what was expected of people. Um, And and I've I've been caught in moments where an OMB issuance Left uh, a state of confusion amongst, let's say, the, you know. Again, I'm dealing on relatively smaller scale issues, but caused confusions among chief financial officers or chief acquisition officers or whatnot that were that were intended to carry out um, this edict. Um, and so I got. I learned lessons from that.
0: And if, re- if in real estate, it's about location, location, location. In policy and implementation, it's about communications, communications, yeah, communications. Yeah. And that's that's why we're going to take a quick break right now. When we come back, we're going to have just one of our—I don't know—one of my heroes of uh, the communications world. Yeah, that's yeah.
1: Eric Schultz. Eric Schultz was just uh, a real, uh, you know, just a huge help to, to both of us during our time in the the administration. And. And let's ask him about some of these questions. Almost as big a help as Billy Mitchell, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you want to go back there? Okay. All right. All right. We'll be back in a moment. Thanks.
0: GovActually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop.
1: GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact.
0: And seamless docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud seamless docs helps make government beautiful all right we're back and uh, Danny you 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 brought us an amazing guest and it's it's an amazing watershed for gov actually too. yeah
1: I, I, this is this is, we were just talking as Eric Schultz and he was the uh, number two in the communications uh, shop of the White House to Josh Ernest and now has just been asked by uh, former President Obama to be a senior advisor and help lead the president, the former president's uh, new life and new, and new professional endeavors. Um, and so, Eric, welcome.
2: Thank you, it's great to be here. I'm gonna bring you guys along wherever I go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think that sounds promising.
0: <laughs> yeah. Given where we got brought along in the past, though. Yes. It sounds a little intimidating. Right. Right. To, yes, because
1: yeah. it was, uh, just for, for background and context, so, um, Eric, you were uh, had many wore many hats within the communications world, but in particular, crisis communications was one of your main things. So, when Las Vegas happened, the Las Vegas conference for GSA, when the whole IRS thing happened, that landed on your plate from a communication standpoint, right?
2: Yes, much like the two of you, nobody wanted to see me in their meeting, <laughs> <laughs> right. so I always got bad looks whenever I entered a room, uh, which wasn't good for my self esteem, but. Uh, the flip side of that is, I got to work with uh, pretty talented and phenomenal people like yourselves uh, who uh, not only take the most daunting of challenges, but do so in a way that's selfless and um, results driven. And I think uh, this portfolio was definitely the most challenging I had at the White House, uh, but it was the most rewarding. And um, I'm sure you want to talk about this, but there's sort of a you can see the model and a playbook of. Going from a full-blown crisis of sort of chaos and just trying to get your head around something, and, and uh, particular enterprise being in total freefall, to um, to getting it back on the track and, and making sure that government starts to work better for the American people.
0: So my my theory of the case is that that process is deeply reliant on communications. That that actually that a crisis generally happens through secrecy or through lack of communications, lack of transparency, and actually the way you win back the moment is, frankly, by learning to share and learning to communicate.
1: Yeah, let's, let's, um, follow-up, but I want to come back to some of your perspectives on GSA, IRS, what was going inside, going on inside your head while these things were going on. Um, but first, right before you joined, Dan and I were talking about this weekend's events with the, uh, with the new immigration executive order, and we were coming at it from the angle of communication, since, since we knew you were coming on. And we were posing the question in terms of what's the right answer in 2017 for, for how to roll out a big announcement? Because there's this, you know, what feels a little bit stodgy of FAQs and fact sheets and embargoes and, and interviews and going up to the Hill. And, and in today's information age, is that what it should still be or what, what, can, what have we learned?
2: Right. Uh, well, look, I wish I came to you with a secret sauce, uh, but I don't have that. Um, You know, I worked in the White House for six years. It was the longest job I've ever had. And we experimented with this uh, a lot. Uh, We don't pretend to have the monopoly on wisdom of of rolling out some sort of announcement or project or decision. Uh, We tried to be creative about it. We tried to rely on the old systems that we knew worked. uh, But we also knew we lived in a new media environment. And the train is entirely different now uh, than it was even in the past administration. Um, I'll give you one example. Uh, In... We we know I read a statistic the other day that one billion people around the world check Facebook on their phones. Hmm. In 2012, when the president was reelected, there weren't even one billion smartphones in circulation. Hmm. Hmm. So that's just the president's reelect, right? That's not our first term. That's not a previous administration. So let me ask you a question yeah.
1: though: Does that mean that the embargo doesn't work the way it used to? I mean, are, are, are there certain principles of, of journalism and, and government affairs from a public affairs standpoint that in the new media age start to falter?
2: Not necessarily. I think it's just important to realize where people are getting their news from. We used to live in a world where most people would turn on their network news. This generation precedes me, to be clear. Uh, yeah. Most people would just turn on their network news, and one of three white men would be telling them what happened that day. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen anymore, right? So more and more people are getting their news from self-selected sources, from online sources, from digital sources. And some sources resemble um, real journalism and some sources don't. So it would be naive for us in the Obama White House or the Trump White House to think that um, we can rely on those old news streams uh, given the current media environment.
1: But has it changed at all? In other words, uh, I asked you about like the embargo right. you know in that environment where everyone's getting their news from three people at 7:30 at night it feels just inherently i could be wrong about this safer to establish like hey no one's going to talk about this for the next hour and a half and let me let me let me give it to you and let me talk to 12 reporters mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. let them ask a bunch of questions and not expect a leak and in today's world, I, I don't know. You, you tell me, Is it, it, it? could that be part of the tension that we see going forward in terms of how these things are rolled out?
2: Yeah, there's no one playbook here. There's no single playbook. We used to use a variety of tools, right? One would be this embargo where we work a report work through with a reporter the issue, what's at hand. We load them up with as much context and as background as possible. Maybe that reporter is at the New York Times. Maybe that reporter is at um, BuzzFeed. But this is someone who we believe can, out of the gate, tell the story in a way that reflects the president's thinking and our argument.
0: Is that conversation one directional, or are you getting something out of the reporter, too? Are you beginning to get a sense of what the reaction will be?
2: Exactly. I think that's a great point. We're sort of uh, f- as much as smart as we are, Dan right. uh, we uh, will we try yeah, and do in it particular, and, yes, 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 we try and anticipate how things are going to go over, sometimes we get it right, sometimes we yeah. don't, but yes, that initial conversation with a smart reporter who is uh, plugged into this issue already uh, is a good sign is a good canary in the mind shaft to tell us how this is going to go there's other instances where um Working one reporter isn't right for the issue. So the, that the issue is, is too um, too broad and too interesting and too hot that we need to brief hundreds of reporters at one time and we'll do a massive conversation. So um, there's nothing – there's no one playbook that fits every bill. Sometimes it's, it's – the element of surprise can work for your advantage. Sometimes the element of timing. We talk about um, the Friday news dump. Well, there's some value in that a lot of reporters on vacation
1: yeah let me ask you a different version of the question with a different audience in mind which is the, the, the agencies and the government workers how do you is there talk about the tension there in terms of you've got something you're gonna roll out it's not fully public whether you're gonna do it and and the content yet there's all these government employees and it's a vast number of them some of them have a right to know and should know some of them don't how do you manage that tension
2: um, yeah, that was something we had to manage for eight years. I would say that um, the the president's approach and sort of our White House's approach was getting buy-in from as many stakeholders and as many components as possible was to our advantage. So we tended to believe that we wanted to brief and make sure that the policymakers were comfortable, our liaisons to the legislative uh, staff in Capitol Hill were comfortable, that the component that deals with the public engagement of Outside groups were comfortable, the lawyers were comfortable. So our view was this is gonna be a better product if the process is cleaner. And so that brings risks, right? That brings a very high level of of leak risk. Yep. Um and to guard against that, we tried to be as careful and as meticulous as possible. Sometimes we're accused of being insular and not engaging the agencies as much as possible. But I think for the most part we drew the right balance because I think for the most part the Policies that we unveiled, the decisions that we made, and the way we handled the President's priorities over the last eight years was on solid ground. And that's um, uh, a testament to the President's leadership and his decision making skills, but it's also a testament to, like you said, the vast number of people at the agency level helping us make these decisions.
0: And that's one of the things that's interesting. There is, um, and Danny and I have talked about this a little bit earlier, was that it's not quite known yet how much. Inter- how much interagency work was done. But generally, you know, in your experience, when you're, when you're releasing a policy, what, would, you know, what was the traditional experience would be around a, a pretty comprehensive interagency process that's already happened. So the feeling is that what you're doing now is hitting the start button once you announce it publicly, not kind of informing the agencies what they're going to be doing tomorrow at the same time.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, you know, my portfolio at the White House was sort of external communications, but clearly the internal piece of this is critical. Mm-hmm. And um, and I know that it put leaders like the two of you in some, sometimes of a tough spot because there's only so much visibility we can give to broad networks of people. Um, but, again, we felt like it was important that the people with the most expertise on the issue and, of course, the people who were in charge of executing on it had to know what was happening or else um, – It just didn't make any sense.
1: Now you said you were you were at the White House for for eight years. I was there for six. six. Did did you get a sense of the the kind of that trust or that uh, willingness to bring more people into the tent? Did that evolve? Over time, as the Obama administration got more comfortable and the White House got more comfortable with agencies, or was it pretty similar throughout? Because the reason why I ask is because one of the potential hypotheses of, of, of what happened this weekend is we're in the early days, right. and they're still kind of feeling each other out and kind of learning these different elements and these different tensions.
2: Yep. Uh, so look, I think every administration is going to have good days and they're going to have bad days. Um that's not unique to the Trump administration, nor was it unique to the Obama administration. I do think there has to be a foundational level of trust in order for the White House to do its job. And it is right for reporters and the general public to be skeptical, uh, to ask questions, to be tough. But if you don't believe that what you're getting is the straight truth, then the whole system gets out of whack. Um, specifically to your question, You're right. You have a team, a relatively small team, inheriting the largest organization on the planet. And to suss out uh, which people are already in the agencies that are um, uh, trustworthy, that are savvy, that are smart, that get it, and that you can establish a quick relationship with, um, that takes some time and that takes some work. And so – you know, the, Some of the agencies where we uh, found trouble is because we didn't have those pre-existing relationships with someone who we totally relied on and depended on um, to get us sort of the best information the fastest uh, possible. And so, yes, it does take time to build those relationships. And, uh, you know, s- oftentimes that can be in a communications channel. Sometimes that's in more substantive lanes, policy lanes. Um, But, look, we've definitely been in situations where um, if we're dealing with a particular office in a particular agency, you know, maybe the communications person isn't the strongest. So we all sort of migrated towards someone else in the office who was sort of the best, better at sort of collecting information and feeding it out. Uh, So I do think it's I think it's smart to be flexible um, because sometimes your precise counterpart isn't the best entree into the team, and you sort of need to figure out who is best positioned to get you what you need.
0: Yeah. So actually, um, it's interesting. Going back to Danny's point about has the world changed, in one of the last interviews that the, um, the former president gave as president, he was asked the question, what, would, what information would you bring as you know, 2017 President Obama to 2009 President-elect Obama? And one of the interesting things he said is, I, I would, I would tell that, um, that uh, President-elect Obama to, to really pay attention to the change in the way people are going to get information, and that there ha- that you know during the time of his presidency, as you pointed out, that there is going to be this tremendous. Uh, disruption to the way information is conveyed to people and the way people absorb it. I know that because I'm really, really interested in alternative viewpoints to the one that I have, you know, um, I click on a lot of stories. As a result, my Google News feed has turned me into, you know, one of these people. Now I have to find a way to click my way back to somewhere in the middle. And it's a very interesting thing that you can get pushed into one of these categories. And if you did give an embargoed story to someone from a news outlet that has a particular perspective, you know a whole swath of the population never ever may never even hear the story.
2: That's right. I mean when the president tells people one of his Big regrets was not being able to communicate uh, his record. We try not to take it personally in the press office. Yeah, right, exactly right. Um, but we we've lived through that. That's criticism not what before. he said. Yeah, that's not yeah, what he well, said. Well, he well. said
0: I'd like to. I I would have liked to pay more attention to that's the
1: right. evolution. <laughs> that, that's nice. Of you. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, you know, forgive me for being defensive. Right. Yeah. So, so, let me ask this. So, so er, in some of our early podcasts, Dan and I have. Started to unpack our experiences—his at GSA in a crisis, me at the IRS in the crisis—and we've we've stumbled upon a theme of kind of what our what our true north, our north star was when, once we arrived in terms of trying to achieve in those very tense situations. You were um, in the White House managing communications, crisis communications in each of those situations. W- what's your true north in, in those moments? Yeah.
2: Um, to be the adult in the room that. Um, Having gone through a couple of these uh, over the course of the six years, I think that we learned a couple of things. The first is that you cannot get swept away in the hysteria of the moment. That perhaps is the hardest, um, because you will have members of Congress, you will have members of the press corps, you will have members of your own team who haven't seen anything like this before, and or think it's to their advantage to spin everyone up. Our view was we had to take the necessary amount of time and sort of altitude to figure out what the North Star would be. So one that neither of you had the pleasure of working on was the uh, failed Department of Energy loan to Solyndra, Right, yeah. That was one of the first yep, I remember it. issues I worked on. Like it was in everyone's interest to sort of gin this up as a huge scandal. Turns out there's nothing scandalous about it. Um, that said, there was so much incoming, and the velocity of the charges and allegations uh, did not wane, no matter the exculpatory facts that emerged. So we worked hard with the lawyers, with the leadership at DOE, with our um, outward facing. Um, communications apparatus to make sure that one we never contradicted ourselves because we, like you guys have said, credibility is paramount. And the moment you say something that later turns out to be untrue you've yielded a huge platform and and, and a level of trust that it's almost difficult, to, to that it's very difficult to gain back. Um, and so why that's hard is you might have to eat a few news cycles of hysteria and of congressmen threatening to subpoena you and hold you in contempt. But our view was let's play the long game and let's gather as much facts as we can. And sometimes that meant 24-hour work days for lawyers who are looking through documents, um, looking through emails, and figuring out where our four corners are. So we quickly determined that with the cylindra failed with the Solyndra loan, our North Star was going to be um, that this was a decision made on the merits by uh, career experts at the Department of Energy. We said that in the first weeks of this issue emerging, and years into nonstop media scrutiny and congressional investigations, that turned out to be true. And so I think establishing what your parameters are early on is important. Again, even if that means you're sending out a spokesman who doesn't have all the answers for a few days. We live in a media environment where that gets outsized and that gets hard. But my advice would be eat that on the front end so that you're safe for the long haul.
0: Yeah, the other the other thing, what I really admired about um, our collaboration around the experience I had coming into GSA. That's a kind word. No, I, I think it was collaboration in the sense that I think you gave me some really solid advice because the tendency, the natural tendency if you're put in charge of something is to defend it. And your answer at, at a fundamental level to me was do not defend the indefensible. Right? You're not you're not there to defend what is, you know, clearly uh, an an issue. That's not how the administration is actually wants to be perceived. We want to be perceived as a as uh, as managers and as leaders who see problems and fix problems. And that actually was incredib- incredibly liberating. It was after my first hearing, and I was kind of fumbling to try to take this middle course between being the new person on the scene and, and trying to defend... You know what the agency did and the answer was no you're the your reason why there's a new person on the scene is because we've actually hit the reset button <laughs> right
1: yeah right. and dan gave me a similar pep talk the night before my <laughs> my first hearing so 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 i have one more question for you um as we as we get ready to wrap up which is one thing that i struggled with at the irs from a communication standpoint and a transparency standpoint is someone would come into my office and tell me something awful that was going on you know some, just something that just se- seemed like oh this that's going to be a problem that's a mistake we've made or something like that and i have this like compulsion like the the hill needs to know about this the public needs to know the meat but but i haven't yet figured out what the it is and it's i need time and so i ne- i really struggled with that timing tension of once I know something, how do I get it out publicly in a way that uh, is smart and balances my need to make sure it's correct, but also my need to be very transparent? And I'm sure you ran into that a lot in your in your role, and I wonder if you had any thoughts on how to manage that tension.
2: Yeah, the answer is usually not cough it up impulsively. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, this goes back to the first topic, right? You can be strategic about this, and you can build a plan that engages your Hill, Capitol Hill equities, um, your attorneys, your media people, um, and your policy folks, and your your sort of staff that you're um, uh, representing. So m- my view is, like we said, you can sit everyone down at the table and let's do some research and let's figure out what it is. Because chances are, coughing something up that's half-baked yep. uh, isn't gonna end well. And it's only going to fuel, again, the hysteria, the intrigue, the interest, but if you demonstrate a level of confidence and knowledge about what the problem is and how you're going to tackle it, um, I, I think this whole exercise becomes a lot easier.
0: I think, I think it does come down to, though, an interesting question. Are you trying to get attention or are you trying to get something done? Because if you're trying to get something done, then that more kind of antiquated process you described in which you're bringing people in in concentric circles – before you make the big public reveal, that makes sure when it happens, it actually can be followed through. If you're just trying to get attention, then you spring it on people.
1: For me it was, you know, the, the, my journey was, you know, when I was named IRS commissioner, I went around the hill and I met with with, with senators and, and, and house members, all with oversight, and I made all kinds of commitments that I tried to keep as much as humanly possible, that I would be collaborative and I would be transparent. And then what happens is someone something happens on on your watch and you don't yet understand what it is and how big it is and whether it's a nothing or a something. And you feel this like, I promised that I would be forthcoming with these individuals and I don't know when to make that final call that, yep, yeah, this is, we've passed the threshold, I'm ready to, to to go up and talk to them about what's happening because I have enough evidence and enough data that this is something versus nothing. And that is something that I would figure that would be really hard. I had to deal with it every once in a while, but as a communications person, I would assume that that's on your mind a lot.
2: Well, there's like a really high profile episode of this, right, in recent history. Um, of someone in an agency uh, feeling compelled to brief the Hill, even though they didn't have complete information, and um, that made a lot of news. And I think a lot of people look at that moment um, and wonder if it could have been done uh, after more uh, awareness of the fact. Yeah. Oh,
1: I, I, I know. I know exactly. But, yeah. 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 Uh, but look, you guys are uh, people who are uh,
2: have to be responsive to the Hill are in a tough jam. And I wish that the characters on the Hill were being more responsible. Yeah. Right? So this isn't a partisan show. I'm going to not go crazy on you. But, look, at some point, our critics and our oversight um, members of Congress, they're either on the level or they're not. And I think we have enough data from the past, again, House uh, from the past six eight years uh, of when this Administration was subject to oversight, we have enough data about what their motives are. And so I think it's naive to engage the Hill uh, ignorant of what their motives are. And that doesn't mean we should shut them out and that doesn't mean we should not be responsive, but it has to be part of the equation because they don't look, some of them, don't look at us and give us the benefit of the doubt. They don't really care necessarily if the irs is processing 501c3 and 501c4 forms correctly right they just smell blood in the water and in order to i uh, you guys might disagree in in order to prosecute your jobs effectively for the best interests of the agency or the project that you're tackling i think that that has to be um part of your decision tree because if not um, things can get out of whack really fast.
1: Yeah, I, I, I totally, this was my, one of my biggest challenges and causes of stress in the job was was the tension that, that, that we're describing. And, and I was operating under, under a rule structure and a, and a North Star that was just different than the rule structure and the North Star that, that, that my colleagues on the Hill were operating under. And I'm not necessarily going to opine one's right or wrong, although in the moment I felt like we were right and, and we weren't always treated fairly. But at the same time, those two things are gonna exist and they're gonna exist in in future administrations. And we gotta figure out a way to resolve it a little bit better because as you mentioned, there's that high profile issue. There's gonna be other situations in which there are leaders of agencies that are going to have to navigate that tension, that promise that I made to be transparent to the Hill, yet in how I execute and the timing could could have major other impacts You know, this is a really important topic, I
0: think. And I think it's because our forefathers thought it was a great idea to create competitive branches of government rather than collaborative branches of government. When people say, I want government to run more like a business, what business is going to have a board of directors, half of which are really want the CEO fired so that they can put their own CEO in? There there are businesses like that. They're generally not in great shape. (laughs) But... um, you know, for our, our billions of listeners, tens of millions of whom are, are government employees, um, what's your what's your final bit of advice in terms of, of communication? So, from the the GS thirteen who runs an office to the the newly appointed secretary, what 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 takeaway would you give them as to how to be you know better communicator and smarter in in the way they handle that that aspect of their work? Uh,
2: two things: be honest and build relationships. Um, again, I. As a spokesman at the White House, I faced a uh, ferociously skeptical press corps um, at all times. That's their job. We're supposed to have some friction uh, in the process. But there was a basic level of trust where they knew that I was being uh, straight with them. And that sometimes I was making an argument that they didn't find compelling. Maybe I was answering a question that they didn't find completely responsive uh, to what they were asking. But at the end of the day, they knew. I was doing the best job that I could based on the actual facts and the administration's position. And then the second thing I'd say is, you know, this is probably true for life. Although, far be it for me to be expansive in my advice. Maybe get your own podcast. Sign me up. (laughs) I believe. Look, the relationships, right? And you know, probably most poignant for Washington, but. uh, there are journalists who I've been working with uh, for 15 years who um, who, we can do a lot of business together in the on the good days and the bad days. And um, they also, they can trust me because we've, again, been through tough times before. We've been through good times. But if you don't have that basic level of trust, uh, I think it's hard. Now, don't get me wrong. I cold call reporters every day, too. Um But I think that once you violate someone's trust and once you sort of uh, abandon a a relationship or um, uh, violate it, I think that um, uh, it gets much harder to do your job. And so um, my view was, you know, email's great, Twitter's great, but have as many conversations as possible, meetings, lunches, drinks, dinners, get to know people. Get to know what makes them tick. Again, my conversations—this is one of your first questions—with skeptical reporters helps me do my job better, so I can f- anticipate the arguments.
1: Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you for coming on board. Thank you for your for your service when when you were in government. I like I I to, to pay you a compliment. We were in the foxhole. Uh, together. And um, and I can say this, and I was in, I've was i been in the foxhole with, with both civil servants, politicals from various administrations. You are a very, very good person to have in the foxhole with you. For, for many of the reasons you just outlined, because there's there's a sense of honesty, a trust, a North Star there that, uh, that I found immensely, immensely reassuring when I was uh, in the tough uh, scenarios that I faced when I was in the Obama administration.
0: Yeah, a talented guy and a good guy. So thank yeah. you very much. Thank I, you guys. Thanks much. for coming on board. Thanks for listening to another episode of Gov Actually on the Fed Scoop Radio Network. If you want to reach out to us, you can tweet us at at govactually or you can send an email to dan at govactually.com or danny at govactually.com.